My name's Amber Lynn. I'm a cop's daughter, a cop's sister, and I've got a lot of friends in law enforcement. Welcome to the Bad Boys, Bad Boys podcast. All right, you guys, welcome back to Bad Boys, Bad Boys podcast. All of you true crime followers here, we love that. I am a true crime passionate person, I guess. <laughs> Today we have with me uh, my dad's really good friend, Barry. Barry, how you doing? Good, how are you? Good. He and I have just been sitting here talking back and forth, and he's a good guy. I remember you lived down the street from us when I was growing up, and we'd always come to your house and put the horses. Yep. And Yeah. You. How long were you a police officer for? Uh, 20 years. 20 years. Yep. Do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your career? Yeah. Um, I started with Orem in 1984 when I graduated from high school, and my whole career was with Orem City. Mm. I dispatched. I was a patrol officer. I was a patrol sergeant, detective. I was on the SWAT team with your dad. And nice. then after your dad left, I was, it took his place. Can you say what you did on the SWAT team? Yeah, I was a breacher. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> My dad um, loved that job. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Got his passion for breaking things. <laughs> you get really good at it. That. <laughs> That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. <laughs> yeah. Um, basically, I... Did pretty much everything that they had there. Worked, uh, did some undercover stuff. Did a lot of detective cases in Orem at that time. It Everybody kind of had their own little niche of what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a lot of property crimes and then major crimes. Okay. Um, when you say major crimes, like um, drugs? Robbery. Robbery. Um, the drugs was the task force. Oh, that's that task force. Okay. Countywide, but I did do some of the drugs when I was working undercover, but did a lot of buying guns and stolen guns. But Oh, so did you have to grow like a big beard? I, I just looked like a rat bag. <laughs> <laughs> just looked like a regular Utah County redneck cape. <laughs> so basically you fit in with a lot of people. I don't remember you looking any different. I've known Barry since I was a little girl, so I don't remember you looking any different. Yeah. But you have horses, so you have to be kind of a little bit of a redneck, right? You got a farm. Yeah, I'm a lot of redneck. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Well, I wanted to have Barry on today because a couple of reasons. A, because my dad adores you. He's one of you guys are good friends. You guys go hunting together. You guys work together for a long time. But um. Also because my dad was like, he has a really good story. (laughs) Here's the thing. All cops, I think, have good stories, but seasoned cops have really good stories. They know how to tell them well, Mm -hmm. and they're not egotistical. So I've I've said this before at the beginning of my podcast when I first started this. I don't want cops on here that are are full of ego Mm -hmm. Um, because there there are some out there. Um, I want this to be like a podcast where people can – see the lives of police officers and really see the dangers in it because sometimes they don't get it. They don't understand it. Mm-hmm. And as coming from a cop's daughter, I remember, you know, lots of things. My mom getting phone calls in the middle of the night when my dad was in the car accident. Mm-hmm. They got hit. I mean, yeah. we could go into that story another time, yeah. but <laughs> you know the story. Yeah. <laughs> and so I want to like bring these stories to life. So mm-hmm. I want you to go ahead and kind of explain the story, give as much detail as you can. Okay. Um, in uh, June of 2003, I was a detective, and I was on call for that weekend. It was a Saturday morning. I got called out. They explained to me at uh, Cook's Greenhouse that they had two dead bodies in a car. Oh, that's like a that's... family location, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. At, so I, I basically was down there as a detective. I'd worked a couple of homicide cases with just assisting other detectives but this ended up being my first homicide that I had that Mm -hmm. I worked um basically you go through the gamut of you know just driving there is you know what do I got and knowing it's going to be a long weekend it was the weekend that Orm City had their parade thing oh the Orm Summerfest and I was thinking (laughs) I'm I'm getting out of my assignment on the parade (laughs) Yeah, lucky you, you didn't have yeah. to like walk in the parade or ride no. in the parade, right? Yeah. Traffic control. <laughs> Traffic control, yeah. yeah. So I, I get down there and kind of describe the scene. Um, at that time, the area by Cook's Greenhouse 
just off of Geneva Road, just south of the greenhouses, they had, it was kind of an orchard where they grew trees. Um, and then the very far south end of that, we knew that people go back there and do their drug deals and stuff. Oh. Because it was off the road and away from everybody. Um, they'd go back in, there's little trails and roads up in, in the trees. Because okay. they were on rows. But uh, I get there and I talk to the, the officers that had uh, secured the scene. Mm-hmm. And they told me a story that uh, it was actually one of the cooks had taken some customers out to look at trees <gasps> to buy. And they came around the corner and they, they saw this. Oh, that sucks. And so they were upset. Right. And, and the cooks are good friends of mine. <laughs> oh, no. So at that time, I really didn't know them. But um, now one of them is my neighbor. So <laughs> now really, really now know you really them. know them. Yeah. Remember that time? <laughs> yeah. They bring that up. I'm sure. Yeah. It's traumatizing. Yeah. I can't imagine. Oh, yeah. So they had a uh, husband and wife who just built a house. And they're getting trees for their house. So I get there and basically the scene is the car, the vehicles face to the west at the very end of the row of the trees. Um, the driver's side door is open and a body is laying face down, but his feet and his legs are still in the car. So the car door is open and his he's yeah. halfway out face yeah. down. Yeah. Oh, man. Um and then there's a female passenger, and she's obviously deceased. And the, the officer told me that it looks like gunshot wounds. Um, they both have been shot in the back of their head, basically. Oh. Um, he had been more shot kind of as he turned his head, kind of towards the back, but kind of in the side. At, at that point, you could tell it was a small caliber round because mm. there wasn't any exit wounds at all. Um yeah, I was thinking of 22. Okay. And later on in the investigation, when we retrieved the bullets and took them to get analyzed, it was a 22 round. But so the initial thing is, you know, at first you're you're thinking, okay, you're going through the gamut. Could this be, you know, a homicide, suicide? You yeah. know, an argument between boyfriend and girlfriend. Um, but just for the fact that the way he was positioned and where the the wounds were in the car it pretty much told me that it it wasn't yeah it it was you know you know we treat everything you know as officers any dead bodies that you go on it's suspicious till you can prove otherwise but this one it was pretty obvious where it was and at that point it it was just really imperative to make sure the scene was locked down because the paramedics had been there and people been walking around the scene and so you try to protect the, you know, you know, the permits were there to save somebody's life, but right. it didn't happen. They'd been, they'd been dead for probably 12 to 15 hours. Really? That so long? So like the night before. Oh, yeah. man. Of course, we found that out later, but, but it was, you know, pretty obvious. They're both uh, Latino. They're both in their 20s. I think the female was only like 20. Oh, so young. I think young. he was like 23. They're both young, young. Um, so it was a, it was a maroon Honda Accord, four door. <laughs> Funny how you that. remember these yeah. things, how huh? the little details. Yeah. So yeah, it, and at that point it was just start taking pictures and doing measurements and, um, basically inside the car it had been rifled through, so somebody had gone through their stuff and you could tell somebody was looking for something so at that that point that really told me that it was some kind of a homicide and initially I thought you know it was a drug deal gone bad right and a couple of things that at, at that time and even now um, a lot of the Mexican drug cartels they use a 22 to assassinate their people why? Because my dad was talking to us about how people kind of talk about how a twenty-two is not that powerful of a gun, mm-hmm. you know. It is mm-hmm. still powerful, it's just not that powerful yeah. of a gun. So why? At, it, at point blank range, it's it's the perfect weapon. I probably shouldn't say that, but it's it's quiet, it's clean, usually doesn't exit. Um, Lodges. Um, yeah, and the cartels, and, and they still do it, 
where they at, you know, basically these two were executed. Um, but uh, they they use a revolver so it doesn't leave any of the casings. But they know that if they shoot them, and they would shoot people in the head with the twenty two because they knew it wouldn't exit. Right. Um, and the ballistics of the twenty two twenty twos are hard to get ballistics off of because they they just they fragment. Okay. So you know they know they know that it's harder for the police to trace that. Okay. They don't know all the ballistic stuff, but um, they they've gotten really good at it. I worked another homicide with another detective. Um, was a Hispanic. It was drug deal, and they shot him with a twenty-two, right on his eyebrow. Oh my gosh! And you know that that was just kind of a signature of, of the, the cartels. cartels at that time. That that being said, after this happened, it it put a wave of fear through the Hispanic community because they everything that was coming back that was the cartels that had killed both of them Aww. but anyway we I, I processed the scene we had our evidence technician come and and as soon as we got all the evidence we needed in pictures we had to remove the bodies Aww. and we had to I had to lift his body up and as soon as I lifted up there was a perfect boot or shoe print <gasps> right underneath his body really with the cigarette laying there you're kidding me! No, no. So that became uh, evidence. Yeah, it, it, it actually became one of the ways that we found out who did it. Oh so, my gosh! By that shoe print. So we did a plaster cast of it. Took, of course, took pictures and measurements of it. Um, it was very pristine. You know, it, you could tell it was new. So whoever pulled them out made that footprint. Um, wow. And it was obvious that he'd been pulled out after he was deceased. Okay, so they were sitting in the car, they were both shot, and then the yeah. man was pulled out. Yeah. Okay. Yep. And it was evident that the shooter, the suspect, was in the back seat, and it shot them from the back seat of the car. So with just that part, that told me that they knew that person some way or another, that they at least trusted him enough to get in the back seat of the car. Right. So, and this took... Oh, it was probably six to eight hours before we got to that point. It was all day. Wow. And uh, initially with the girl, we thought she was pregnant because she was bloated up from being there for a while. But we found out later she wasn't. Wow, it happens that, was, that fast. Yeah. It, you know, since summertime, it's warm. Oh, yeah. So, Summer in Utah gets hot. Yeah. And, you know, they've been in that car. Of course, we've been working the scene all day. So we got their bodies, and, and the medical examiner's office sent their transport down, and they, they sent the bodies to the medical examiner's office in Salt Lake. And at that time, it was part of the university. It was attached to the University of Utah. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, after we processed the scene and got all the evidence we could, the car had a lot of evidence in it. Um, so we just made the decision to seal the car up and have it towed up to the state crime lab. How do you seal a car up? Um, with crime tape. Okay. So you you tape the door shut and you put a seal and you sign your name on it so that seal's not broken and then when the crime lab opens it, they record, you know, that they opened it. So okay. they could say that when they got there it was sealed up. Okay. And it's a little difficult with a whole car and yeah. a tow truck company and that that was kind of Because they have to touch it, right? Yeah. So we had to, you know, um, I didn't want to fingerprint it at the scene just because it's it just wasn't something that we, could, you know, want to do. It was kind of a decision amongst several of us. But um, but you probably don't want the car there anyway. You're trying to get no. it off the property where yeah. there's people shopping for yeah. trees. They trace. wanted it gone, yeah. yeah. So, but the car was our whole crime scene, basically. So I had an opportunity to seize the crime scene and it gave us a really good opportunity to keep that crime scene. Yeah. We took care of that. Um, I think I finally left there about, it was just about dark. So I'm going to go back to the plaster of the, the footprint oh, okay. really quick. Yeah. yeah. So tell us about that. Um, basically you just 
have a plaster mix that you mix together and then you just pour it in basically that shoe print just makes a perfect mold for it so that fills in all the treads and so it does a reverse image of it we had to we had to find some sticks to put in that plaster because it was a huge footprint um really the it turned out that we found out later that the the guy wore a size 14 shoe and um, a cigarette butt i'm assuming you guys took that and put that yeah, in a little bag we're at that point the dna stuff was they were doing it but it was a slow process it wasn't quick like they have it now it's yeah. still kind of a slow process but that and other things of evidence that we could see but i just didn't want the car to be disturbed much and so we sent it up to the state crime lab and they were, they processed the vehicle um for fingerprints basically and when they got done with the car they hadn't found hardly any fingerprints and uh, I was just kind of frustrated you know and I wanted to get the car back and there was kind of some hesitancy on the administration they didn't weren't sure about bringing the car back uh-huh. so I ended up getting a ride up there and I put on a paper suit and I drove this car back to the police department on from Salt Lake. You're <laughs> kidding. From, yeah, it was in Salt Lake. It was at State Crime Lab. So that's like, so for those of you guys that aren't familiar with Utah, so Salt Lake is like the center of the state, obviously. So you drove south about yeah. 40, 45 miles. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I'm driving this car that these. Wait, why did they not, why did they not want to bring it yeah. back down? It's. That's a long story. Oh. <laughs> That's a whole other podcast episode. Yeah. <laughs> kind of one of those conflicts between the, the guys in administration. Okay. A lot of that came from budgets and funding and money. But Got it. Um, I wanted to keep the car. And that was, that was a huge battle throughout my investigation of keeping that car. Just because I knew there was a ton of evidence right there. And if I let that car go I'd lose everything yeah. basically um, so I went kind of kind of getting ahead of myself but Sunday we went to the Emmys office in Salt Lake and when you're an officer that a detective that's investigating that you have to um, witness the autopsies oh. and retrieve the bullets which they found both the bullets um, and they, they determined that the bullet had actually gone in and kind of bounced around, <gasps> basically just kind of scrambled their brain. And so it, it killed them fairly quickly. That's Got, so sad. Yeah. And that, that's always tough. Autopsies aren't fun to go see. <laughs> yeah. But it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. But, um, but you have to be there to retrieve any evidence, like the bullets, to keep your chain of evidence. Mm-hmm. And... Especially um, in this case where there was two people that were murdered, I knew that it would there was a possibility that we had a capital offense, a death penalty offense. So I didn't want to mess anything up. Right. Um, what makes it a capital offense? What makes it? It's um, basically if you kill two people or it's torturous or execution, there's a bunch of factors that are involved. Okay. But, um that, that basically makes it a case where they face the death penalty. Okay. So. And we are a death penalty state. Yes. After uh, Gary Gilmore, when they, they they started the executions again when they executed Gary Gilmore. Okay. And this case ended up being <laughs> the only the second capital murder homicide that they had in Warm City since Gary Gilmore. Oh my gosh. Um, so it was kind of a big deal. Right. Um, so yeah, you can't screw anything up here, no. Barry. And, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and I'd never worked the homicide by myself. I'd done a lot of deaths and suicides and things like that. But, yeah. you know, so I'm trying to think, or covering all my bases. And, you know, basically it's like, it's yours, you know. <laughs> so we got the, the autopsies done and confirmed that they've both been shot. Of course, we knew that at the scene. Um, There's quite a bit of blood in the car. Yeah. That's what made it really weird driving the car back. That I was hoping oh. I wasn't going to get stopped by anybody because this blood's in this car, you know. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it, 
I was freaked out driving that stupid car back. So oh, I told I the guy sh- that took me up there, I'm like, you follow me, make sure nobody pulls me over in this car. Right. Um, well, that kind of sounds a little traumatizing. It, to drive in all that blood, somebody yeah. else's, and you know mm-hmm. it's a murder vehicle. Yeah. I spent a lot of time in that car. <laughs> oh, man. And throughout the investigation, I, I got the car back, and I put it in our sally port and locked it. We had a sally port that had a chain link fence inside so I could lock it in there. And just this is a, on Orm City's property? Yeah. Okay. It was just after they built the new police station. So, okay. So basically I had what I saw at the scene. Two people that had been obviously shot in the back of the head. They're both Latino or Hispanic. Um, so at that point my concentration was obviously, to me, it was drug and gang related. Just from all the the... The evidence and how they were killed mm-hmm. that that's kind of my concentration well you know they do a press release and of course they always put in you know the press release if anybody saw anything or knows anything to contact the police yeah and the first two weeks I probably had two or three hundred calls Wow of people that thought they saw something and and when these big deals happen people they want to help um, <laughs> But there's also people that kind of want to be part of this investigation. <laughs> so become so, a cop then, no? Yeah. <laughs> Just well, teasing. Then, then you end up getting a lot of dead ends and things that really aren't leads that take a lot of time. I was going to say, you feel like you're wasting your time on that. Yeah. And, you know, you have to follow it till it, you, you know, could show that it wasn't involved. Um, like I said before, the, the Hispanic community in the area was really scared. Because they they felt that they um, they felt that the cartels were up here executing people, (sighs) and that that's a common thing that happens even today in Mexico. So you cross the cartels, they just take you out. Yeah. So that was kind of the, and then we went, got a search warrant Sunday afternoon, and went to their apartment in Provo. So you figured out who they were, yeah, we and got, were they, they were boyfriend and girlfriend, yes, and they were living together, yeah, okay. And they they had an apartment down on three hundred South in Provo, okay. Um, it was just a little apartment behind the kind of the back part of the house, and we went in there and searched. And from the things that we recovered, we found that they'd been making a lot of trips to Southern California, wow. and the car had like. A lot of miles on it. I can't remember exactly what it was, but we talked to the neighbors there, and they said, "Yeah, they go to California a lot." Hmm. Um, which you know, just an assumption, but they're running drugs. You know, that yeah. they're making that many trips to Southern California. Well, the thing is, is that when you've been a cop as long as you have, it's not usually an assumption. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is stuff you already know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so we got her cell phone at the scene it was in the car but at that time it wasn't you just call up the cell phone company and give me the records you have to go through a subpoena process and their legal people because the cell phone companies really and i'm not sure how it is now but they were really hesitant to give anybody information so we had to get a court order to get it so that took a few weeks because i knew that phone was the key yeah and it did show that there was a message, voice message on it, but I couldn't, I couldn't legally just go in and start doing it. I had to have a search warrant. Yeah. And because of the of the case, you know, you had to do everything by the book, you know, because it, I knew that it would end up if we caught whoever did it, that it would end up in a trial, and you know, of course, the defense is going to try to tear apart your whole case. So I'm getting all these leads, and I'm people are telling me to go talk to this Hispanic family, and that's this group of Hispanics, and I was not received well by any of them. Aww. Um, because they knew you can understand it though. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because you know I'm there to talk to them about two people who just got murdered, yeah. and you know because I'm there, they're thinking I'm thinking they did it. Yeah. And so they, um, most of them were not helpful didn't want to talk and I kind of understood that but it was kind of led me away from what the truth really was I I took the plaster cast and we sent I sent that I took that up to the crime lab 
and they actually sent it to the FBI lab and they came up and it took them a few weeks to get it back to me but they came up with what type of shoe it was and what's basically what size it was wow and it was a case swiss um, <laughs> to, they they gave me the model and sent me a picture of it oh my gosh that's yeah. so cool and they figured that out from the shoe and people ask me well how do you know what the size of the shoe was well in in the shoe industry they use a different blank a bigger blank for size above like a size 11 okay it needs to be bigger so they could tell basically what size the shoe was um from the print and they said it was like a size 14 so i knew i was looking for a big big shoe yeah but <laughs> that was one of the probably the biggest key evidence from it but the investigation went on i Got the car back from the crime lab. I was kind of frustrated because they really didn't find much to help me out. And I knew, I had a feeling there was something still in the car. It's that cop sense. Yeah. So I proceeded the next two weeks to take that car apart. Wow. (laughs) And uh, uh, I had a, a canine come in and he hit on the bumpers. And I took those off and there was some residue there. So they were obviously packaging the drugs in there and putting them in the bumpers. These guys are creative. I am not that smart. (laughs) I don't know. I like to say I'm smart, but I could never think of doing that. Well, those bumpers had just a a large amount of foam in them, and they'd taken that foam out and made a place they could put the drugs in. Jeez. Um, He did hit inside the the car, but it was kind of confusing. And so I I continued to... Well, before I took it apart, at, at that point, they were just coming out with a, what they call an alternative light source. And okay. basically, it was a, a light that would show different wavelengths of light, and certain things would fluoresce under different wavelengths, like blood oh. or uh, bodily fluids or even drugs. I had a West Valley detective that I'd worked with that was really into it, and really, and so we were able to obtain one of these machines to do that. So I did that with the car. I also fumigated the inside with super glue. And Wait, super how glue, do you do that? Well, to find prints on an object, basically you put the object like in an aquarium. Okay. And you just take a little dish and put super glue in it. And then a little bit of water just keeps it moist. So you know how super glue has a lot of fumes right. that come off of it. Well, that's part of the super glue. It will come off and it will attach to fingerprint. And it will actually raise what? the fingerprint. That is so cool. So you can dust that print and take those prints off. And I ended up getting about 40 different fingerprints on the inside of the car. And my that concentration so was really the back passenger area. Um, it was obvious to me that somebody had wiped the doors off. You could see that somebody had messed with it. So you, there was no fingerprints there. Jeez. Um, so I, I, like I said, I basically lived in that car for about two or three weeks, taking it apart. And I got to the center console and started taking it apart. And it was one of those consoles that had the emergency brake. It would have been between the passenger and the driver's seat. Oh, yeah, like the middle. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So underneath that, there was a plastic console where you could put stuff in it. So I took that off and there was still a plastic piece that went over where the transmission went. Okay. Um, and there was a little plate, plastic plate that was there. It looked like I could take it apart and I popped that open and I found a half a pound of cocaine. <gasps> <laughs> and what? Yeah, that was bagged up in little baggies. How much is the street value of that in Utah? I, I have no idea now what it would be worth now what was it what do you think back then oh it it was probably eight or nine thousand dollars worth. oh my gosh yeah. Yeah. so you're like case okay, score one yeah <laughs> so that leads us to what we thought and that explains why somebody had gone through the car and went through the stuff they were looking for They're they looking knew for that, that. that they had that that amount of drugs with them and with the drugs was a little scale and they were all in smaller baggies, so they'd all been measured out to sell them. Um, 
They were all a couple ounces okay. each. Turned out it was pretty pretty good cocaine. So we knew that it hadn't been cut yet, but um, wow. meaning that they cut the cocaine to make it go further with just whatever they have. So they just like, it's like a supplement they add yeah, to it. Right. Okay. So they use baking soda or whatever they have handy. And of course <laughs> it's going to be cheap. Yeah. You know, baking sometimes it's the thing with street drugs is you don't know what they're cutting it with. Yeah. So, um... So we found that, and um, I know we'd have detective briefings every day, and I go in there, and they're like, I bring up the case, and most of the detectives would be like, oh, <laughs> we don't even want to hear it. And it was usually, really don't have any leads, but I followed up these leads, and they're all dead end, and everybody, I could always just tell they'd just sigh, and everybody throw their pants on the table. And <laughs> Here goes Barry yeah, again. That's great. we got to listen to this stupid thing, and... Um, that next morning I was able to tell them that we found this cocaine. <laughs> so, wow. But the interesting thing about that is it had been to the crime lab and they didn't find it. So. Yikes. Yeah. Well, and, you know, to the crime lab's defense, they just have a ton of things going on and, yeah. you know, just don't have the time or manpower to. And to they're still it. human. Like everybody. Oh, yeah. there's Absolutely. Human it error. Was, it was a it was deep down in the car. I mean, once I lifted up, you could see the the steel of the car, the bottom of it, you know. So it was right down on that. So that of course gives you kind of another breath of new evidence to point you in the direction. Okay, this was a drug deal. Obviously, gone bad. Yeah. Um, the suspect was obviously looking for this cocaine. That led to a possibility that they were just trying to rob them. They mm -hmm. knew that they had it. And I, about that time, it might have been a little later, that I finally got cell phone records. And there was one last phone call, and I couldn't find who it was from. But eventually I got the recording, and it was the gal, the female victim, talking to a male. And he said, you have the shit. And it was about 8 o'clock at night. On that, that would have been Friday. So that mi this already matches your timeline. Yeah, it totally matches the timeline because we figured it was Friday afternoon, evening, sometime, mm -hmm. or night after you know Cooks had gone home. Um, the problem was this area at that time they didn't have it fenced off, so it was just open to Geneva Road, so people yeah. could come and go from it. Um, so the things are, it was really frustrating because of all the bad leads I had you know I was I was just chasing my tail for several weeks it was really frustrating actually for several months it, it kind of continued yeah. um, until I got and I can't remember exactly time-wise when I got the message I could tell it was a male voice and, and you know obviously sound like he was kind of a gangbanger you know talking that mm -hmm. just, okay so that's what I'm looking for, you know for but I'm still thinking Hispanic, um, and all the information I got was Hispanic, Hispanic, um, but that didn't end up to be the case, mm. so another kind of twist in the case, but um, I, I got the information on the shoe, and we'd have uh, countywide detective meetings, and they'd always uh, send uh, somebody from the FBI. It would be all the, all the agencies in Utah County, and we happened to have Juan, Bar Juan Becerra was the agent's name. He was awesome. And I made copies of this picture of this shoe and said, Where, where's this shoe? Is my suspect. So, and it was a very specific type of shoe. And at that time, K-Swiss was pretty popular, mm -hmm. but it was still, because of the size, um, it was kind of odd, you know, so it was really identifying. Um, at that point, I was kind of at the end of my rope because I hadn't found really anything solid to, to really go on. I was still fighting with the cell phone company, trying to get information. Uh. Um, and I had the message, but they wouldn't give me the information on where the phone call came from. At that the, time. Com the phone company wouldn't yeah, do that? they were just really... 
they give a little bit and then you have to call them and hassle with them and they give you a little bit more and it, it's a game yeah it because of privacy issues and privacy laws but i had to send the subpoena to california to their their legal offices and they look at it they decide what they were going to release but finally i got all the information um but at that point I didn't have the information on where that phone call, who that phone number belonged to. And now it's really easy to look up basically anybody's phone number. You can Google it or whatever and, mm-hmm. and get it. At that time, we didn't have that. Yeah. <laughs> and that to me was not that many years ago, but. Yeah. <laughs> 2003. But it was, yeah. of course, I had to do everything that was was legal. And this went on till I think it was about October. One of the detectives, I was at the office, he took a phone call from Juan, Sarah from the FBI. And he said, I've got some information. Did you guys have a double homicide in Orem? And the detective said, yeah, and he gave him my name. And I got back and he told me, he said, this guy just called from the FBI and said he might have some information on this homicide. So I I called him and, and he had explained to me that he had... Um, been working at a case of, um, oh, it was like, it was a gang out of Salt Lake that would, had been going around doing a series of armed robberies. Mm-hmm. And they were what they call a takedown, takeover kind of robbery. So they were really violent with the people, um, putting them on the floor, pointing guns at their heads. So he'd been working this case and he actually picked up one of the suspects who ended up being this my suspect oh. that actually committed the, the homicide. But at that point, he didn't say anything to the FBI agent about the homicide. He said, well, me and this other guy were the ones doing the robberies, and he basically ratted out the other guy for doing the armed robberies in Salt Lake. Oh. So they went and picked up, they kept this guy in custody. His name was Seth Broomhead, and I can say his name because... He's in prison, but um, <laughs> so he went and picked up the other guy, and I can't think of his name right off the top of my head, and interviewed him. And this was before I got involved, but and the FBI agent told him, "Your buddy just ratted you out." Oh. And in the midst of that conversation, uh, that interview, he told him, "He said, well, that's fine, but I got information on a double homicide that he committed in Rome.'" <gasps> So that was the dirt he was going to put on yeah. the Seth guy. So they ended okay. Up ratting each other out. Um, Jeez. So Juan stopped the interview, basically got some basics about it. And that's when he called. And I called and talked to him. And I tell you, I, I about broke down. Because oh. it was just like, you know, it's been my life for all summer. And yeah. he told me that, um, he told me this story about picking Seth up and, uh, the other guy kind of ratting him out for these, ratting him out. Well, he'd ratted the other guy out for the robberies. And this guy said, well, he committed this. He killed two people in, in Orem in an orchard. And so um, when he called and told me that, he said he'd been working with Seth and actually had helped Seth move his stuff from his apartments to back to his parents' house in Bluffdale. And he said, I saw those shoes. Oh my gosh. And I'm like, are you kidding me? And he's like, I'm like, I, I went and met with Juan. I said, it was these. And he said, yeah. So with that information at that time, I was able to write a search warrant for his parents' house for his belongings. I also went and interviewed the other guy. And the name slips me, but I'm getting old. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we went to Salt Lake County Jail and interviewed this kid. And he told us what happened. And he said, I, he just had knee surgery, which we found out that he did. He said that they were meeting these two to buy a half pound of cocaine. But he said, but we were going to rob them of it because we didn't have the money. So he said that they pulled in and the victim's car was facing west and they pulled in east like their headlights are shining uh-huh. each other. Um Seth got out, and then this other kid got out of the car, but since he was in a knee brace, he couldn't walk very well. So he said, I just sat on the front of the car. And 
you know, the, the plan was they were just going to rob him. And he said that he didn't know that Seth had a gun. Well, he said that they'd used guns before, but he didn't wasn't aware that he grabbed the gun and took it with him. And he got into the back seat of the car, and he said that there was an argument, and you could hear him swearing and yelling. And he said, just all of a sudden, there was two gunshots. Oh, my and gosh. He said he shot the guy first because the girl was screaming. And then he shot her. Um, he he said, I was freaking out. Like, what the hell did you just do? At least right. that's what he told us. But And from some of the stuff at the scene, I'd seen just the tire track. So I knew another vehicle had been there. Mm-hmm. Really couldn't tell on tracks because paramedics and stuff had been in there. So I didn't have any... And that was so, what was so key about that shoe print underneath his body because that couldn't, couldn't have been messed up. Right. So um, he told us that he'd shot both of them. He rifled through the car for a minute trying to find the rest of the drugs. He only would show them a, what they call an eight ball. It's just a little baggie of cocaine. Mm. Um, and uh, that's when the argument broke out because... Seth, who was the suspect, wanted to see the drugs before they give him the money. Of course, they didn't have any money to give him. And the victim obviously realized that that's what was going on. Oh, my and gosh. That's, this kid said he really couldn't hear, but he could tell. It's like, you know, show me the money, show me the drugs, back and forth. Um, he said it wasn't very long, and the gunshots happened. And he said that he saw her kind of slump over. And that's how we found her. Um, but she was kind of leaning against the passenger side door and kind of slumped over. And then he said that they tried to find the drugs or that Seth had rifled through it. He said that he never got into the car and I never did find his fingerprints on it. Seth's I did find. Oh, did you? Yeah. Um, I actually found a bunch of them inside the car. But Wow. So the story goes, these two freaked out, and they left the scene, and kind of a side note, Seth was adopted by some people that owned a mortuary, and uh, so he didn't have a problem. He told them, we're going back there and find the stuff, and I need to wipe down the, the the door handles for my fingerprints. Oh, my gosh. So they came back, and... He found a pair of They left gloves. the scene? They left and were driving on I-15 north to go back to Salt Lake. And we're having this discussion about, and, and of course they're freaking out about each other. What the hell did you just do? You know, he's killed two people. Why did you do that? And Seth's like, I don't know. I just freaked out. And, oh my um, gosh. But he told the other guy that he was, he's going back. And the other guy was like, we're not going back. He's like, yeah, I'm going back. So he went back and he said that Seth opened the driver's side door and pulled the guy's body and just dropped him. And it was just enough to get him out of the seat. And then he went through more and rifled through the car and took one of the cell phones. Because he was still looking for the drugs though too. Right, yeah. That's really what he was looking for. But he grabbed his cell phone. He didn't find her cell phone and that's we were able to, to recover that. Um, so he, he said they went back, and that's why his body ended up face down on the ground because the suspect had actually pulled him, tried to pull him out of the car. Mm. So it's interesting. One of the news reports said that he ran and got a few steps away from the car, but they just had misinformation and just basically made up their own story. Right. <laughs> I'm, I'm not very pro-media. <laughs> right. <laughs> They, they tend to just kind of fill in the blanks with whatever mm-hmm, they, they mm-hmm. want to do. But right. He said that they went back and then he wiped the car down for fingerprints. And then they left. So we talked to this kid for hours and went through. And, and basically, you get them to a story and then see if they stick with that. And this is one of the you know, ways the investigative techniques to see if they're telling the truth yeah. you know because if they're not they're, they can't tell the same story twice yeah there'll be little things and and he was i think we had him tell us like three or four times 
and we were there for probably four hours. Mm. I know the jailers had come by a couple of times. Are you guys okay? <laughs> yeah, we're okay. Um, so, so now I have the suspect, and this kid was involved, so he's a suspect. Of course, he's wanting some deal. Of course. And I'm like, well, it's you know pretty preliminary. I can't really say yeah or no, but you know you're cooperating. And as long as everything you tell me truth, we'll go to bat for you and see if we can work something. Gosh. Um, as long as it's not, you know, that you were involved in the car also. Um, and he swore up and down that he wasn't. Um, and he, he admitted to a lot of the robberies to us. Um, also, Juan, Juan was there with us when we interviewed him because Juan had kind of developed a relationship with this kid. Right. And so we went through a lot of things, but we went back to the actual homicide, and he went through it every time. He told it exactly the same every single time. Yeah, so, so thought, you know his story's yeah, legit. It's legit. And this is like the end of September, 1st of October, so this occurred in June. So You're going on four months. Four months, and I'm thinking it, it, it just made me an emotional wreck, yeah. you know, because that's all I would think about. That's all I'd work on. And, of course, the other detectives were kind of getting ticked because I wasn't taking on any more new cases because I was just, you know, yeah, doing this case. But um, so we get done interviewing him, and Seth was arrested, and he was up at the Davis County Jail. And I can't remember but uh, how it ended up, but Rosie Rivera, she's actually the unified, like the Salt Lake County Unified Chief oh, now. Oh, okay. Um she had she knew Seth and I can't remember exact I think Juan had told me that she had kind of a developed some kind of a relationship just you know relationship of trust with this Seth kid mm -hmm. so it came down to um, we set up an interview with him um, and, and just before we did the interview I wrote a search warrant and I served the search warrant and we found the shoes so, at his parents' house. Yeah. Nice. So we have that huge piece of evidence that really linked everything together. Yeah, because you've got the match and you've got the shoe, or you've got the mold, you got the shoe to put them together. Yeah. yeah, and of course we sent that to the crime lab and they did their analysis on it. And they said, yeah, that shoe, just because of wear, would make a certain type of tread. And they matched that up to the, to the print. So they could say within, you know, almost 100%. Without a doubt, those were the shoes that made that print. Mm -hmm. So that was a big deal. I felt bad for his parents. They'd adopted him when he was young. And he was actually a black male. Uh, the other kid was also a black male. And they formed this gang. And it was like baby gangster disciples or something that they were calling themselves. But um, Interesting. There was gang involvement. They had several yeah. people that were involved in the gang. And, and they were operating out of Salt Lake. And... They were shaking people down for money, and of course they were doing the armed robberies for money. So we we get to the day where we get to interview him, and I they just come out with those digital voice recorders, because um, in my day we had the cassette, yeah, <laughs> the little mini cassette <laughs> recorders, right? Pull it out, so, and put on the counter, press record yeah, and play at the exactly. same time. <laughs> so this one was actually digital. Nice. And I played with it before I went up there and thought I had it working and so I got that in there. And we started talking to him first he's denying everything and he's like, "Where did you find this out?" And he said the other guy's name, he told you this cuz he actually did it. That wasn't me. Oh my gosh. And it got kind of heated with Seth. Because I think he knew he was caught, but he was still denying it. And he got kind of foul and abusive with us and told us to F off. Of course. And Rosie, you know, she was awesome. She calmed him down. Of oh, so you got her to interview with him? Oh, yeah. With you guys? Yeah, with him? we had Good. her come with us. And she talked to him and she, you know, just basically explained to him, you need to tell him the truth. And... He finally did admit that it was him that, that shot and killed him. And of course, we asked, well, why did you do that? He said, well, I just, 
they wouldn't give show me the drugs and I was gonna take them didn't have the money for it and I wanted the drugs and he said I was high and he said it was just a reaction I pulled the gun out and shot them both in the head and it was just that matter of fact that's so sad that these two lives are just so matter of fact yeah yeah and you know the life's a matter of fact for the victims and for those two yeah you know and it was sad because his parents had adopted him and he'd had struggles through all through high school and now of course I'd already served the search warrant and I had to tell the parents what was going on right why I was there and just totally devastated them so there's some more victims that were involved in that so we we interviewed him and he finally confessed to it and we got a confession from him that he'd actually done it and it was about that same time that I finally got the phone number that came back to him oh Oh, that's right from the girl's phone oh yeah, yeah yeah that it was from him and he said yeah that they'd called him and I can't remember the exact times, but he said the exact the time when they called and it matched what was on the phone records. Wow. And that he basically told me what he said to him, you know, you got the shit. And yeah. We're going to meet at Cook's or, you know, at that. I don't think he said Cook's. I think he said that orchard off mm-hmm. of Geneva Road. Um, so everything's matching up after all this just misinformation and, you know, and we got him to do it. <laughs> That digital recorder did not work. (gasps) (laughs) Did not record anything. Oh my gosh. (laughs) So that was like, I was in deep shit for that with with the captain. It's like, whoa. You know? You're like, I'm old school. I don't (laughs) know. I don't know how to run this crap. Oh my gosh. I'm going to slow Barry down here for a second. (laughs) Okay. We're going to end this this week's episode. And I'm going to bring him back next week. Okay. So you guys stay tuned. Come back next week. Thank you, Barry. I'm excited to hear the end of this. And we'll have Barry bring on a few other stories on our next podcast as well. So, okay, we'll see you guys next week. Thank you.